Thanks for listening to the weekly teaching podcast for City Church in Knoxville, Tennessee. It is our desire to be a Jesus-centered family on mission. If you live here in Knoxville or are ever visiting the area, we'd love to have you with us at one of our Sunday gatherings. You can find out more at citychurchknox.com. If you're interested in giving financially to help us reach more people in our city, you can give easily at citychurchknox.com give. And finally, if this teaching is helpful to you in any way, we'd love to hear about it. You can email us at info at citychurchknox.com. With that being said, here's this week's teaching. Well, good to see you guys this morning. My name is Kent. If I hadn't had the chance to meet you, I'm one of the pastors here. If you have a Bible with you or on your phone, you can turn with us to Luke chapter 10. So that passage we just read, we'll get there here in just a few minutes. Uh, Last weekend, in fact, last Sunday, uh, I went to go see Oppenheimer in theaters. Anybody else seen it yet? A lot of us. Uh, I went with some of the guys from my life group. Uh, and man, what an incredible, beautiful, deeply troubling movie that was. Um, I also found out uh, for the first time as I was watching the movie uh, that it is rated R, and it earned every bit of that R rating. Uh, so just figured I'd offer that to you, do with that information whatever you wish, but I did not know that uh, going into it. Wasn't prepared for some of that based on Christopher Nolan's previous movies. So um, just FYI, but uh, man, I, I really, really enjoyed the movie. Uh, and, and ever since then, ever since I went to go see the movie, uh, the almighty algorithm of the internet that I think spies on us constantly uh, has been targeting me with one suggested post after another about Oppenheimer and about its director, uh, Christopher Nolan. And one of the posts that I saw carried the headline, Christopher Nolan doesn't carry a smartphone. And I thought, I'll bite. I'm interested in this article. So I pulled up the article and turns out not only does he not own a smartphone currently, at least at the time of writing of that article, he never has owned a smartphone. He also doesn't really use email, like at all, and he writes his movie scripts on a computer with no internet. And to me, at least, that was kind of fascinating. Christopher Nolan, who is responsible for what I would consider to be some of the best movies in the past couple decades, chooses not to spend very much time on the World Wide Web. And he's still alive. <laughs> like, he, he's still a human that functions in our world. I found that to be such a novel concept. And when explaining why he chooses not to carry a smartphone, uh, he said this, quote, my kids would probably say I'm a complete Luddite. I would actually resist that description, though. I think technology and what it can provide is amazing. My personal choice is about how involved I get with it. He continued, it's about the level of distraction." If I am generating my material and writing my own scripts, being on a smartphone all day wouldn't be very useful to me. That's his reason. Not that he thinks technology is bad, not that he thinks people who use technology are evil or wrong, none of that. He has just concluded that for the type of person he wants to be, for the types of things that he wants to accomplish in life, a smartphone would simply be an unnecessary distraction. It just wouldn't be very useful to him. 
in his words. Now, I don't think this was intentional, but that line, it wouldn't be very useful to me, actually reminds me a little bit of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 saying that while all things are lawful or, or permissible for me, he says, not all things are beneficial. Not all things are helpful. The assumption being operated from, I think, is that we live in a world of constant distraction of which our phones are at least one major component, right? But that if we want to make room in life for the things that truly matter, that truly last and have an impact, then we will need to figure out a way to at least minimize those distractions, if not eliminate them, and channel that time and that attention into something more important than the distractions themselves. That, I think, is what Christopher Nolan is saying there. I read somewhere a while back that the average human attention span is dropping with each passing year. In the year 2000, so before the digital revolution truly took place, humans had an average attention span of 12 seconds. I wouldn't say it's exactly impressive, but it's something, right? Does anybody want to guess what the average human attention span is now? Somebody said three. We're not quite that bad, but it's bad. Uh, The most recent study I could find, which I think was a couple years ago, said it is now down to eight seconds. Just for comparison, a goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. (laughs) So we are now losing to goldfish. But my point is that all the more reason to be conscious and aware of the types of things we are giving our attention to as human beings. Does that make sense? So today, I want us to talk about distraction. If you're joining us for the first time this morning, welcome. So glad you're here. Uh, For you to know, just for some background, we are in week three of a teaching series all about how followers of Jesus are called to be different from the rest of the world for the sake of the rest of the world. The language that Jesus uses for that idea in Matthew chapter five is that of a city on a hill. That's the language he uses. And I would argue that one of the ways that we as followers of Jesus are called to be different from the world around us is that we are called to be a people marked by presence in an age of distraction. A people marked by presence in the age of constant distraction. A people that learn to say no to the constant propensity towards distracting ourselves and numbing ourselves with technology. And a people who say yes to presence with God and also presence with other people. So for more on what I mean by all of that, I want us to first look at the passage that we heard read just a moment ago. So Luke chapter 10, I'm going to read it from the ESV today instead of the NIV, just because I like to keep you on your toes. I know we usually read from the NIV around here, but today, ESV, starting in verse 38 of chapter 10, it says this. Now, as they went on their way, and there, there refers to Jesus and his disciples. As Jesus and his disciples went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. Verse 40, but Martha was, and notice this language here, distracted with much serving. 
And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So this is a relatively short story in Luke's gospel. And we've taught on this passage quite a few times before in our church's history. But that's at least in part because I think this is such a vivid depiction of both the problem of distraction and of the much healthier alternative to distraction, which we might call presence. In the story, we read that Jesus went into a village where he was invited into a woman named Martha's home. And once he went inside, Martha's sister, Mary, sat at Jesus' feet and listened to his teaching while her sister Martha was distracted by much serving. Now, that word distracted in the passage means to, to draw away, or more literally, it means to drag all around. It's, it's a picture of a person being pulled away and pulled apart and pulled from place to place with all sorts of different things, things that they are preoccupied with. It's, it's when you feel like you can't ever focus on the thing in front of you in the moment because of the 14 other things that are not in front of you that need to get done or that need to be tended to. That's the state, that's the mindset that Martha is in in this story in Luke chapter 10. She is distracted. Now, it says that Martha is distracted by much serving. Serving, as we've pointed out before when we covered this passage, is not a bad thing. In fact, according to Jesus himself, serving is often a very, very good thing to be doing. So the point that Jesus is making in this passage is not so much that Martha is doing something bad, it's that she is allowing a good thing to distract her from a necessary thing. Namely, that it is distracting her from doing what Mary does in the story, which is being with Jesus and listening to Jesus. And I would argue that we often find ourselves in a very similar position to Martha in the story, in our modern world. For a lot of us, the problem is not that we're caught up in a lot of bad things as much as we are caught up in good or neutral things. But those things are distracting us. They're dragging us all around in every direction except for the direction that would be most helpful for us, most beneficial for us, namely the direction of a life lived towards God and the things of God. Catholic priest and Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way. He says, we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major roadblocks today within our spiritual lives. Now, it's possible that he may be overstating some of that for effect. Right, Because sometimes there are, in fact, bad things interfering with our life with Jesus. Namely, sin would be one there, right? But still, I think there's a very valid point that he's making there. Sometimes we cannot manage to have time for the great things in life because we have crowded those things out by dozens upon dozens of good things. 
find things, neutral things. In a word, we are distracted. And those distractions have kept us from, in Jesus' words, the one necessary thing. Mary in the story chooses that necessary thing instead. She chooses to be with Jesus and listen to Jesus. That, according to Jesus, is the one thing you absolutely cannot neglect as a follower of Jesus, being in the presence of God. Another word for that idea would be the word beholding. So look with me on the screen at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. This is verse 18. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church at Corinth, says this, And we all, followers of Jesus, we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Beholding the glory of the Lord, Paul says. Now, I'll acknowledge that beholding is probably not a word that most of us use in everyday conversation with people. If you go out to eat today after the gathering and the server brings out your food, I highly doubt you're going to say, wow, I'm just sitting here beholding the glory of this meal. That's not really language that we use in today's society. We don't talk like that. But I would argue we absolutely know what it means to behold things. We actually do it all the time. We absolutely, when that meal arrives, if it looks good, we say things like, wow, that looks really good. Online, there is an entire category of posts on social media that people have labeled food porn, which is literally just a term for really appetizing pictures of food from all over the world that people scroll through and drool over. That is people beholding good food. This is why most of us, if you get us talking about our favorite Netflix show or our favorite movies, we'll talk for quite a while about it, much to the chagrin of the people we're talking to who are probably bored with us talking about it. But it's why we watch some movies and shows over and over and over again, even though we've already seen them and we already know the ending of them. That is us beholding those things. This is why we pull up our favorite song or our favorite album or our favorite artist on Spotify and we want other people around us to hear the music that we're playing and we get inordinately angry if people in the room talk over it such that you can't hear it because we have beheld that music and we want other people to behold it with us. All of this is what it looks like for us to behold things even if we don't use that language to describe it. I would argue that as human beings, we have been hardwired to behold things. First and foremost, we are made to behold what Paul calls the glory of the Lord. Now, glory is probably also not a super familiar word to us outside of singing it in worship songs, but the word glory literally means weight. For something to be glorious, that means it is heavy, it's weighty. Most of the time, it means figuratively such, which is actually similar to language that we use in English. If we go see a movie that really made us think and feel and contemplate a lot of things, like Oppenheimer, we might say that that movie was heavy, that movie was weighty. And what we mean by that is that it was profound that it provoked all kinds of thinking and feeling and contemplation and reflection within us. That's what it means, in essence, for something to be glorious. It means that it is heavy and weighty. 
And Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that we as followers of Jesus should spend time sitting with and beholding the profound, weighty glory of God. So a question worth us asking is this, what are some of the glorious things about God? I want to give you what I would consider to be just a very small list of the things that are glorious about God, just to get us started, just to help us think in the direction that I think Paul intends here. Here are some things that I would consider glorious about God. First, God is eternal. He never had a beginning and he will never have an end. He is what the Bible calls the uncreated one. The other night I was telling my daughter Nora, who is four, about how God made us. And so she naturally asked, as any four-year-old would, okay, but who made God? And I just had this moment where I smiled and I said, no one made God. He's just always been. God is never changing. He is always the same in all of his virtues and character and commitments. God never promises something that he doesn't deliver. He never makes us guess at who he is or what he's like. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever in the Bible's language. God is all-knowing. He knows everything about everything. He knows every letter of every word on every page in every book in the entire world. He knows which of those words are true and which of those words aren't true. He knows the thoughts of every single person who has ever existed. He knows more about those thoughts and their causes than the person thinking them does. God is infinitely wise. There has never been a situation where God was confused about what to do or what decision to make. God is infinitely capable. The scriptures say that our God is in the heavens and he does as he pleases. There is nothing that can stop God from accomplishing his purposes on the earth. God is infinitely powerful. Sometimes I feel like I cannot get my kids to do a single thing without asking them approximately 14 times to do it. God, on the other hand, speaks a word and creation comes into existence. God is perfectly patient. God extends grace after grace after grace to people who hate him, reject him, curse him, mock him, and run from him. He never flies off at the handle. He never loses his temper. The Bible says that God is, quote, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And at the same time as all of this, everything we just read, at the same time, the Bible tells us that God identifies with the lowly. Somehow, despite all the immense power and knowledge and capability that God has, God gravitates towards the neglected, towards the helpless, towards the forgotten about and picked over, those that the world has chewed up and spit out. God sees those people and says, them, I want them. And as I said, that is just a small list of the things that the scriptures teach us are glorious about God. And I've just got to say, if that is who God is, if that is the God that we get to know and live in relationship with, don't the things on our phones just seem like a really poor substitute? We could live for a million years and not even grasp a fraction of God's glory. There are an infinite number of things worthy of beholding about our God. And Paul says that in 2 Corinthians, 
precisely because of how glorious God is, when we spend time beholding that glory of God, something actually happens in us as a result. When we behold the glory of God, we are transformed into, in his language, the same image. So what does Paul mean there? What does the same image mean? Transformed into the same image as what? In the context of the passage, it would seem that he means the same image as God himself. So Paul is not saying that when we behold God, we become God or we become a God. That's not his point. But he is saying that the more we behold God, the more we become like God. We begin to reflect to the world around us what God is like. In context, Paul is actually alluding to a story in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament where Moses would go up on a mountain, he would interact with God, and then he would come down and he would literally be glowing with the glory from the presence of the Lord. Paul is referencing that story in the Old Testament and saying that in a similar way, when you and I spend time beholding the glory of God, our lives will actually put on display that glory. Remember how we said a couple weeks ago that we are called to be holy because God is holy? Remember how Jesus said in Matthew 5 that we should let our light shine before others so that they may see our lives and give glory to our Father in heaven. Okay, all of that starts with us beholding the glory of God ourselves. Beholding God transforms us into his image, which brings even more glory back to God himself. The rate at which we are transformed into God's image is directly proportional to our level of attentiveness to God. I know that was a complex sentence. I'm going to say it again. I couldn't figure out a way to make it shorter. The rate at which we are transformed into God's image is directly proportional to our level of attentiveness to God. And the more time that we spend in the presence of God, the more we are able to embody his presence towards others in our world. And that, church family, is why distraction is such a problem. Because distraction actually short circuits all of that. Everything I just mentioned. It prevents us from looking at God's glory and beholding it on a regular basis, which prevents us from becoming people who embody God's glory towards others. If we are not people marked by the presence of God, we cannot possibly be people who reflect that glory to others. So if we want to become the type of people, the community of people that God designed us to be for the sake of the world, we must figure out a way to eliminate or at least minimize anything that distracts us from the presence of God. We must become a people marked by God's presence. But in order to do all of that, we first need to figure out something. We need to figure out why we are so prone to distraction. Why we are so prone to distraction. So last week, my wife and I sent our kids to my parents' house for a week. We call it grandparent camp around our household. A week where the kids are with them and Anna and I just do our best to catch our breath for a week or so. That's our vacation, even though we still work during it. That's our vacation for the year. If you're a parent in the room and you haven't done that before and you have the ability to, got to say I highly recommend it. It's a very good idea. 
even if we did come up with it ourselves, I feel okay recommending it to you. Um, when you are a parent of young kids, and I know that's a lot of our church right now, when you are a parent of young kids, you do not get a lot of moments in that season to catch your breath and have uninterrupted quiet and time with each other. And last week for us was an opportunity to do just that. But reflecting back on that week since then, I think I'm a little surprised at how much of last week I personally filled up with distractions. Anna and I got some good time with each other. We certainly got some quiet. The quiet was very eerie and weird. We weren't used to having that much quiet in the house. We got great time with each other. We went to J.C. Holdway for dinner on a gift card, which is the right way to go to J.C. Holdway unless you want to double mortgage your house. Um, It's a great restaurant. It's just really expensive. Uh, So we had a great week. It was awesome. But at the same time, I think we also filled a lot of that time up with other things. Both of us worked some extra hours. We cleaned and organized the house, and by we, I mean Anna did. I'm not, I'm not very good at that. And then we did the typical millennial thing, which is that we sat next to each other on the couch and scrolled through our phones for way too long. We got some time together and with Jesus that week, but we also spent a lot of time distracting ourselves. Some of it, albeit with fine and good things, but still distractions. And the more I think about that week, the more I think it just reminds me of something that I've learned about myself over the years. You see, it's not just that I end up distracted a lot of the time after, out of pure necessity. So it's not just that I have too many things to get done and therefore distraction is inevitable in my life. That's only the case some of the time. I think it's actually that deep down, I've come to prefer the distractions. I think a lot of the time, I am actually more comfortable with the distractions of life than I am being in the presence of God. I'm Martha in the story from earlier, in Luke chapter 10, finding anything and everything to do except for the one necessary thing in front of me. I think there are parts of me that are almost allergic to being in God's presence, at least for very long. I think there are parts of me that are actually nervous to to sit and be with Jesus and listen to what he has to say, because if I do that, there might be some things that he says that I need to hear. And some of those might be things that I need to reckon with and deal with and own and repent of and acknowledge, and all of that can be really difficult, deep, grueling work to do. I think there is part of me that would rather be pulled in a thousand different directions and preoccupied with a dozen different things than just be still before God. Because you see, when I'm still, I have to at least acknowledge that the world can go on spinning without me. When when I'm still, I have to admit that there is a God in charge of running things in the world and that God is not named Kent. And sometimes I wonder if a lot of us have that going on. To get anywhere in our fight against distraction and towards presence, we have to understand that sometimes there are actually things that we are seeking from the distractions themselves. Distraction often, at least for a lot of us, just feels easier than a life of depth 
and presence with God. But here's what you've got to realize. Here's what I've got to realize. While it may be easier in a lot of ways, it certainly is not better. California pastor John Ortberg puts it this way. He describes the problem like this. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith. It is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. I won't make you raise your hand, but does anybody else in the room resonate with what he's saying there? Do you ever feel like you're just skimming your life instead of actually living it? I very much feel that way at times. And I don't know about you, but I don't want that to become the pattern of my life. I don't want that to become the default mode of existence for me. And I don't want to settle for a mediocre version of my faith in Jesus. So for the rest of our time this morning, I want us to just talk about how we can go to work trimming distractions out of our lives, at least as much as possible, and becoming people marked by the presence of Jesus. So three questions I'll give you to try to diagnose this and kind of implement something more helpful into our lives communally. First question we need to ask is this, what am I distracted by? What am I distracted by? What are the most consistent distractions in your life? What is the thing most consistently keeping you from regularly being with and listening to Jesus? Distractions can come from a variety of sources, to be sure, but I would imagine that for each of us, there is probably one thing causing at least the majority of the distractions. Uh, For me, it tends to be work. My job here at City Church is probably the thing that most consistently distracts me from presence with God, which I get is ironic because I work at a church. (laughs) But still, it really is for me. When I get a moment or two of quiet in my day, I will most instinctively fill that moment of silence up with problems I have to solve at our church or things we need to teach about at our church or tasks that I need to perform for our church. And maybe that's it for you too, whether you're in ministry or not. Maybe for you, work is the most consistent distraction in your life. Maybe it's not that though. Maybe it's something else. Maybe for you, it's something like your hobbies, Again, that's not to say that hobbies are a bad thing. Some of us, myself included, could benefit from some hobbies. But at the same time, I also think that for some people, hobbies are a way to avoid sitting and being with Jesus. We would rather get started on that next project or or go fill up our time with other things than devote much time at all to beholding the glory of God on a semi-regular basis. Now, hobbies can be a form of worship. A way to worship God through the talents and interests that he's given us. A way to connect with other people and build relationships with other people that enjoy whatever that hobby is. They can be a way to enjoy God's creation and be driven to worship through that. But they can also be a way to distract ourselves from the things that truly matter, like being with Jesus. Maybe for you it's not work or hobbies. Maybe it's technology Maybe for you, every spare moment you have in life is being filled up by some combination of social media and entertainment. If you get a few moments to sit still during the day, either the TV is on 
or your phone is in your hand. Some of us do both of those things at the same time, just for good measure, right? Maybe technology is the drug of choice for you. Maybe that's the thing that most consistently distracts you. Or maybe it's something else still. I don't know what it is for you. There are a multitude of different ways that we choose to distract ourselves from the things that truly matter in life. But if we are going to get anywhere with doing anything about it, we have to first identify what the most frequent distraction is for us. Especially for those of us that gravitate towards technology, it might even be helpful to check the screen time feature on your phone the thing that calculates exactly how much time in a day you spend where. If you do that, it will likely give you a very clear picture of where the majority of your time is going. It's also likely to make you very uncomfortable. (laughs) I looked at the screen time on my phone the other day and I was like, I thought I had a family and kids, but evidently I just have a phone. That's all I have in my life based on the time that I spend on it. So it might make you very uncomfortable, but I think we've got to figure out What is the thing, or maybe a few different things, that are causing the most consistent distractions in our life? So first, ask that question. Second question is when and why am I distracted? When and why am I distracted? Now, I do get that those are actually two different questions, but sometimes I find them very helpful to ask together as one, and here's why. At least a lot of the time, when we are distracted tells us a lot about why we are distracted. Let me give you some examples of what I mean there. If you find yourself regularly distracted while you are at work or while you're supposed to be working, that could mean that you are struggling to find purpose and meaning in your work. Now, I think some people would counsel you in that type of situation to just find a different job, find a job that you can find meaning and purpose in. And maybe that's the solution, possibly, but I would argue that an even more holistic solution to that problem would be to ask the question, why can't I find meaning in my work? Why can't I find meaning in my work? Because the perspective of the scriptures is that all work, no matter what it is or what you're doing or how interesting it is, all work actually matters to God. So the question actually becomes, if this work matters to God, why doesn't it matter to me? What lies have I believed about myself or my time or my talents or my opportunities that incline me to think that what I am doing right now for work at my job doesn't actually matter? I think that's a valuable question for us to ask and answer and sit with. If you find yourself regularly distracted, like me, by work when you're not at work, like when you're at home with your roommates or spouse or kids, why is that? Why are you distracted there? Could it be that you are not fully grasping the importance of that time, the sacredness of that time? Is it that you don't see your friendships or your marriage or your parenting as a place to rely on and encounter the very presence of God? Is it possible that there are lies we have believed there about the types of things that God helps us with and is interested in and the things that he doesn't? If you find yourself regularly distracted in the mornings or the afternoons or the evenings when you're doing your best to just sit in the quiet and listen to the spirit, listen to the scriptures, why is that? Is it because you don't feel productive 
during that time? Is it because you value that time, but you, you feel a little lost on what to do and how to do it during that time? Is it because there are things that are tugging at your heart and your mind in a way that makes that time feel mentally impossible to pull off? With any of those reasons, I think there are practical steps that you can take. You can talk about it with your life group. Let them help speak into what to do. There are questions you can ask, practices you can engage in. But this is why I say that often, when we are distracted, can tell us a lot about why we are distracted. It might be a pointer to a more specific diagnosis of the problem and therefore a more helpful solution going forward. Ask when... And why am I distracted? Then finally, last question. How can I fill those moments with God's presence? When can I fill those moments? How can I fill those moments with God's presence? So it's here that we probably need to clarify something very important. And that's that being present with God does not always mean sitting still in one place with a Bible open in a deep state of concentration and like Hillsong United playing in the background to set the mood. If that's how you roll, good for you. Go for it if that's helpful. And I would argue that we do actually need to set aside at least some time each day as best we can to sit and be quiet and have our undivided attention on God. That's really, really helpful. But... This is important. Don't believe the lie that those are the only moments you can fill with God's presence. His presence is not limited to those types of settings. There was a follower of Jesus in the 17th century, commonly known as Brother Lawrence. He worked as a dishwasher in a Paris monastery. In some of his writings that were compiled after his death in a tiny little book called Practicing the Presence of God, if you got it, you could probably get it from Amazon, you could probably be done with it in 30 minutes. It's that short. This fantastic collection of his writings about living in the presence of God. In that book, he said this about being in God's presence. And I find it so very helpful. It is written like he lived in the 17th century, so I'll try to translate it a little bit. But this is what he said. The time of business, and by that he just means doing my day job. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. By that he means just sitting before God with nothing else going on. Those times for him do not seem all that different in function. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. So he was Catholic. So the blessed sacrament was thought to be one of the holiest, most distraction-free places you could be with the presence of God. And yet here he says that he was able to be just as much in the presence of God as he was washing dishes in a kitchen with people yelling at him about different things they needed as he was when it was just him on his own before God with nothing else happening. I don't know about you guys, I long to think that way about God's presence. And also, I sometimes feel light years away from thinking that way about God's presence. Can anybody else identify with both of those sentiments at the same time? Good. So I'm not the only one that's bad at this. That's really comforting for me. So as we conclude this morning, let me just offer you what I think, at least in theory, 
is a way to move us in the right direction towards understanding God's presence with us in all of life. Again, this is not coming from an expert. This is not coming from somebody who's good at it. This is coming from somebody who's very bad at it and trying to teach myself how to ride a bike, essentially. This is what I think can help. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31, we'll put it on the screen, says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do it all for the glory of God. So whatever we do, Paul says, whether we are eating or drinking or working or playing or resting or hobbying or stressing or struggling or hurting, whatever it is that we are doing, Paul just said that we can do all of it for the glory of God, which must mean that we can do all of it in the presence of God as well. So just as some examples, when we eat, we remember that every single thing that we eat was either created directly by God for us to enjoy or created and put together by someone who God gave the ability to think that thing up and produce it for us. That, I would argue, is worthy of awe and attention and wonder if you stop to think about it which means that in that moment, as you eat, you can choose to be in the presence of God. When we drink, and yes, even when some of us drink alcohol, we remember that, I know sometimes people get uncomfortable about that in church, but even when we drink alcohol, in the context, Paul is even talking about the Lord's Supper, which included wine. So when we drink alcohol, we remember that in the words of the Psalms, God gave wine to gladden the heart of men. Now, not to intoxicate the heart of man. That's a different thing based on how it's a different word. <laughs> but the Psalms do say to gladden the heart of man. Some of that took a while to catch up to you. That's fine. You're with us now. That's a different thing. But the Psalms do say, wine to gladden the heart of man, which means that drink, too, is worthy of ascribing awe and attention and wonder back to God, which means that in that moment, too, you can choose to be in God's presence. When we work, we remember that God gave us the opportunities and the abilities and the talents and the time that we have, as well as the relationships with the people around us at work, which means that even as we work, we can choose to be in the presence of God. When we play and when we rest, we remember that God gave us the time and the margin to do those sorts of things and to do them in a beautiful city where there are plenty of things to do, like Knoxville, Tennessee where there are all kinds of incredible places to participate in those things, which means that as we do those things, we can do them in the presence of God. When we worry, we remember that worry in the kingdom of God is an invitation to trust the one who can do something about all the things that we worry about. We can cast our worries on him in the language of 1 Peter, which means that even then when we worry, we can be in the presence of God. When we hurt, when we grieve, we remember 
that we worship a man of sorrows who is acquainted with sorrow and grief, which means that we can choose to live in his presence in those moments as well. And I could go on, but I think all of this is what it means to live in the presence of God, to live with a constant awareness of God's presence with us. This is what it means to behold the glory of the Lord. And by doing that, to be transformed from one degree of glory to another, which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. And listen, as we are transformed from one degree of glory to another, we become the city on the hill that Jesus dreamed of. We become a light in the darkness to the world around us. All of that starts with presence. So here in a moment, followers of Jesus in this room are gonna head to the tables in the various corners of the room where they will partake of the bread and the cup. And what we are doing when we participate in that is that we are remembering the moment in history where God made his presence freely available to each of us through Jesus. By sending Jesus to the cross, he made a way for each of us to live daily and hourly in his very presence. He gave us the ability to see past our sin and the various distractions in our lives and to live unhindered in his presence because of the cross and the resurrection. So as we do that, let's pray, let's ask the Lord that he would make his presence known to us in that moment and also in every moment of our lives as we follow him. Let me pray for us.